creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQALFM on the campus of Winona State University. This week on Culture Click, we take you to Nerd Night at Ed's No Name Bar in Winona. We'll hear from Professor Beth Zold. Zold will give a talk on Mary Toft, the 18th century woman who convinced doctors that she had given birth to rabbits. I'm Willard Hike, and this is Culture Click on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Willard Hike here at Nerd Night uh, at Ed's in Winona with Beth Zold. How are you doing tonight, Beth? I'm great. It was a fantastic time. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about what you spoke about tonight. Um, I talked about Mary Toft, who was alive in 1726, and in that year she convinced doctors that she had given birth to rabbits. Now you took a little bit of a, at least in part, a different angle to this topic. Tell me about that. So usually the story is pretty sensational, which the summary would show. It's pretty sensational. Um, But when you look at Mary's confessions about what happened and what sort of preceded the event, um, you find out that she had miscarried and she was in a pretty awful mental place. She'd just gone through some major trauma and she was sort of convinced to do this. So she wasn't sort of a crazy woman who started pretending to give birth to rabbits and doing all these unspeakable, unthinkable things. Um, But really, it's kind of a sadder story about a woman who went through a trauma and then ended up being kind of almost victimized by people around her. What got you interested in that topic? Um, I learned about Mary Toff very briefly in a graduate class that I took. And I really wanted to read more of the actual primary texts about the doctors. So I started doing some research on my own. So I was sort of hearing about her and then wanting to do more. Awesome. Well, Beth, really nice talk. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us. Everybody give uh, Beth Stoll a warm welcome. heard of Typhoid Mary, uh, Bloody Mary, some of you are even drinking some Bloody Marys, and so I'm here tonight to tell you about another infamous Mary, and that is Mary Toft. Um, And Mary Toft, if you have heard of her, um, you know that she's the woman who pretended to give birth to rabbits and actually convinced several doctors that she had given birth to rabbits. Um, Oftentimes when you hear the story She is portrayed as this crazy woman shoving rabbit parts into her vagina. Yeah, oh, it's get worse. It gets gonna get way worse. Um, But actually tonight, I kind of want to take a little bit more of an empathetic twist. I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you a little bit about some of the reasons we think she did this, and some of the things behind it. So you kind of get a broader view um, than if you just went onto Wikipedia and looked this up. So I want to start with Why the story of Mary Toft? Well, this took place in 1726, and this was what we think of as the first real media sensation. Um, When this happened, you had all of the doctors who were involved writing narratives. You had people writing ballads and singing them in the streets about her. You had plays being put on about her. You had comics being drawn. This was a huge thing that happened. And so, like I said, you can read about some of these things online, but at the end of my, um, my talk, I'll give you my email, and you can email me if you want to read the actual documents, because I think there's nothing better than reading the original. 
So I'm going to give you sort of for the cliff notes tonight um, what I can cover in my time. So I want to start with the setting. So this took place between September and December of 1726, a relatively short amount of time. And it started down in the very, very small city of Godalming, England. And it's going to move to Guildford, England, and eventually into Leicester Square in London. So here are people involved in this. First, you have Joshua Toft. This is Mary's husband. They were married for six years and had three children before all of this started. Um, he was a journeyman clothier, meaning he was part of the laboring class. He didn't make much money, um, not well educated, and he was, as we find out later, um, was charged with getting some of the rabbits for all of this. Then you have Anne Toft, who was Mary's mother-in-law and a midwife, and that will become important much later. And these um, pictures that I've taken are drawings from a cartoon um, that was drawn about them, a, a, satir a satirical cartoon. There's also uh, Margaret Toft, who is Mary's sister-in-law, and she acted as Mary's nurse during part of this. And lastly, we have Mary herself. Um, we know that she was illiterate, so everything that I tell you tonight will be accounts written by men involved. Nothing by her. We do get a few of her confessions, but those were written by the doctors who were taking it down verbatim. One thing that I always like to point out is when you read these narratives, very little about Mary is actually given. So they don't talk about her as a person. She is sort of an assemblage of parts. Basically, they talk about her vagina, her uterus, her cervix, and her breasts, and that's about it. She's never really a person. Um, in fact, the only description I could find was from Nathaniel St. Andre, one of the doctors. He said, she's of small size and fair complexion of a stupid and sullen temper. That's it. And he said, that's enough about her. Anyway, moving on. And so, so tonight, partly, I want to give a bit of a bigger picture, especially at the end. So let's talk about these doctors. The reason I'm focusing on these five are that they each of them wrote and published an account of what they saw. And these were sort of the big names. They were either connected to the king, or they had their own kind of big um, reputation. So I'm focusing on their accounts. There are more doctors who were there than these five. So first you get John Howard. He was a man midwife, which is what they were called. And he um, later comes to be suspected as a co-conspirator in all of this. So he's the first one. Next comes Nathaniel St. Andre. He was connected to the king. He was the king's surgeon. He believes Mary. Um, when you read his account, he very much is sympathetic and believes that he is seeing the birth of something incredible. Then you get um, Sarias Ehlers. Um, he is also one of the king's surgeons, and he is an, a major skeptic. He specifically went to disprove all of this. He, his account is basically, this is absolutely insane. No, this is not happening. I'm going to prove that she's a liar. Then you get Richard Manningham, who, is, who was a, um, a famous obstetrician. He was a skeptic, but he was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. He said, I, I will you know, go and look and see, and then figure out if she's lying or not. And then James Douglas, a very respected physician, anatomist, and, anatomist, and then again, a very big skeptic. So these are the folks um, that we're going to be taking a look at. And it's interesting if you read them, each of them will contradict the other's account of what they said and what happened. So it's a really interesting mix to read together. 
All right, so let's start. I'm going to go chronologically. I'm going to tell you the story, and then we'll get to the sort of behind the scenes and why. So this all started on September 27th. Mary goes into labor, and she gave birth to pieces of a pig. Yes, I know she's a rabbit breeder. Just go with it. Um, <laughs> Anne Toft, her mother-in-law, who is a midwife, attends this birth. She sees this, and she runs to go get John Howard, a respected physician in a nearby town. John Howard comes, and he's with them um, about a month. And over the next month, Mary delivers a rabbit with the legs of a cat. Why not? Sure. <laughs> 13 dead baby rabbits, most of them in pieces. So here's what you have to know. They go into really intense descriptions. And that is, so she would never have a fully formed baby rabbit. It would be like the trunk or the hind legs, or the head separate. And all these had come out at different times, and so they would place them separately in these, um, in these buckets or cisterns to keep them. So they were all, but in total, it came out to 13, if you add them all up. 13 dead baby rabbits. I was struck by this description of one of the doctors. The nails of the paws were most of them exceedingly sharp. So you can imagine those coming. And if you don't know what a, a rabbit's claws look like, I found a picture for you. So you can imagine that coming out, right? This was not, I mean, yes, I'm sure childbirth is painful, but this looks terrifying. So <laughs> you may be wondering why rabbits? Of all the things to pick, how, how on earth is she convincing people I'm giving birth to rabbits? Well, this is the story that she gives. She tells people, and this is, the, this is the drawing of the time that people gave. She says she was weeding in a field way back in April. So this is happening in September. She said, back in April, I saw a rabbit when I was weeding, and I chased it, and I didn't catch it, and I was, it was really, really sad. And at that point, I was about five weeks pregnant. And then I see another rabbit in the same field, and I go after it, and I don't catch it, and I was so upset. And so that night, I go home, and I dream that I'm in the field holding these two rabbits. And then I woke up in this horrible, she says, a sick fit that lasted until the morning. And from that time on, I just cannot get rabbits out of my head. I have this strong desire to eat rabbits, but you know, I'm really poor. I, I can't afford them. So she becomes obsessed with rabbits after this. Yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, all right. So the other question becomes, why did she think people would believe it? Right? Here's why. Something called maternal impression. So this is a very old, I believe you can see I pulled something from Aristotle, so we're, we're talking, this goes way back. This belief that a sudden profound impression made on the pregnant woman's mind could pervert or stop the growth of a fetus or cause a birth defect. So I'm not going to go too much into maternal impression now, and I'll answer questions about it after if you want, um, including what's going on in this picture. Um, but basically, the idea is that women's bodies were susceptible to powerful external forces that could then be transmitted to the baby, and it was always negative. There was nothing like, oh, I listened to this great song, and now my, my child can play music. It was, I heard a loud noise, and now my baby is deaf. Okay? So you think about this as a way to, to transfer blame of whatever happened to the child physically onto the mother. That was her fault. So this had been around a long time. It was sort of falling out of favor at this point, but definitely still around. People knew what it was. They were taking advantage of this idea of maternal impression. All right? But still, like I said, not everyone believed it. 
So, now we're going back to our story. So, upon hearing this, um, Howard sends out letters to all these people trying to get them there. King George I sends one of his surgeons, Nathaniel St. Andre. And this is about mid-November. So, he is very thorough, thinking uh, this could be a trick. So, he examines her vagina before each birth. And makes really clear, like, I checked all over, there's nothing in there, right? She's not just shoving things up there, it's definitely coming from the uterus, right? He's very clear on this. Um, so while he's there, he attends the birth of the trunk of a rabbit, stripped of its skin, containing a heart and lungs. Now at this point, to prove that they're not just sort of gullible, they take a piece of the lung and they put it in a glass of water. And it floats. What does that mean? There's air in it. This lung has breathed air. Hmm. Hmm. Nevertheless, he continues to believe. Then he gets, later, another birth, the trunk of the rabbit's skin, but this time it's the bottom half, and he gets the rectum that contained dung, which he believes is meconium, which is the sort of first, um, you know, development that all mammals have. So that's what he thinks. That's the way he explains it away. Oh, this is, this is common. Then he gets the skin of a rabbit rolled into a ball. That's his description. Again, how it gets rolled into a ball inside of a body, I don't know. But he, again, is still believing. Because he, he insists he's checking her vagina every time. And he says, I, I, I have my eyes on her the whole time. And, and trust me, it's just it's not happening. Then he gets the head of a rabbit. There's some fur on it, part of the ear tore off. They really go into detail with all of their descriptions. And then lastly, he gets what he calls a placental membrane that has been rolled up into like a parchment. Like they just roll like, and again, he's still like, yeah, okay, this is a this is evidence, it's a placenta. Maybe the rabbit rolled it up inside, I don't know. And so he, he really has nothing to gain from this, which is what's so interesting. He's already a preeminent surgeon. So it's really interesting that he's falling for this. It's not gonna raise him in esteem anywhere. Um, and that's why some people believe that Mary, and we'll get to this, she says the same thing, actually at one point did manage to pass pieces through her cervix into her uterus. Those of you who have cervixes, <laughs> or that anything passed through it, will tell you that is painful as right? Yes. And this is what she is doing, the reverse direction, so then she can then push it back out to show that she, yes, yes. All right, so he tells, Nathaniel St. Andre tells the king that he thinks that this is real, and that um, she's not giving birth to regular rabbits, but a special new breed of rabbits. This is something new that she's giving birth to. So King George then sends Sirius Ehlers, who is definitely a skeptic. Um, he is there at the end of November. He delivers the loins of a rabbit, and says that then John Howard, the first person who was with her, won't let him deliver anything else. And that makes him really, really suspicious. He also says he observes Mary kind of walking with her legs like this, like somebody's trying not to drop out. And he's like, mm, yeah, I think that, that that's not real. And then lastly, when he takes that, um, that bit of dung that Nathaniel St. Andre found in South Meconium, he takes it and examines it and finds hay-strung corn in it. He's like, yeah, this rabbit was eating things. This is clearly not coming from inside of her. And he reports to the king that this is a hoax, and he actually thinks Howard is in on it. In the meantime, St. Andre, in his quest to prove that she's giving birth to rabbits, calls in all these doctors, including 
Manningham and Douglas. And while they're there, uh, Manningham, again, they're really obsessed with whether they're things in her vagina or not. So Manningham says, her vagina is empty. I searched it thoroughly and carefully. But he does feel a hard substance in her uterus and doesn't know what it is. But, he says, her cervix is closed. She's not dilated. She's not ready to give birth. He says, in fact, it was so small you couldn't fit a pin through it. So, like, clearly she's not dilated at all. And then Howard comes up and shows them that membrane that he says is part of the placenta. And Manningham actually thinks it's a piece of a hog's bladder. And he says, yeah, that's not a membrane. That's a piece of hog's bladder. And Douglas concurs, said, yeah, that, that's not a placenta. So the two of them decide this has to be fraud. Um, at one point, another piece of hog's bladder uh, appears in Mary's vagina. And so Manningham, ever being the scientist and doctor, checks to see if it's coming, if, if it's partially coming through the cervix or not. He said, nope, the cervix is closed. I have no doubt in my mind it was placed there. She's not actually passing this. So, in the meantime, on November 29th, they move Mary to a bathhouse in London so more doctors can come and visit her. Um, and while she's there from about November 30th to December 2nd, she has a lot of labor pains. And her labor pains are described as literally like her, her belly bouncing, like she's moving. This is a physical sort of thing, like really over the top, but she delivers nothing. In fact, she appears very ill. Well, yes, if you're shoving cars in your you're gonna get sick. So she is starting to be very pallid, like she's, she's getting very, very sick. Um, on December 3rd, Nathaniel St. Andre, ever the believer, God bless him, um, publishes his account in which it is very clear he believes her. Unfortunately for him, that very same day, a porter to the bathhouse confesses to bringing Mary a rabbit. Mary's sister-in-law, who was her nurse at the time, says, oh, no, 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 we were just going to eat it. Like, we, we promised we weren't going to put it anywhere, we are just going to eat it. <laughs> Manningham is having none of it. And so he takes her and he tells her, listen, I'm going to have to perform a really, really painful surgery in order to figure out what's going on unless you confess. The next day she confessed. She says, um, and this is the first time we really get her voice in all of this. Um, she gives her confession and what's interesting is that she begins with her miscarriage. So if you look at her confession, the first three written pages are about her miscarriage. The first one, she gives three different accounts, three different confessions. Her description is lengthy and detailed. She talks about seeing a rabbit, that part was true, but then going home and um, passing what she says is, quote, an object as big as my arm, and then experiencing her bleeding that lasted a week. Then three weeks later, she was working in the garden and she experienced more bleeding and pain. And miscarriages can be prolonged events, lasting weeks, and that seems to be what she was experiencing. Um, you know, this is an incredibly emotional and physically taxing thing to happen. Um, and so throughout the confessions, the chronology of her miscarriage and then the subsequent things being put, the, the animals being put inside of her, are always closely connected. She's very precise about when the miscarriage happened and when these things started being put inside of her. And so, um, in her mind, these things are directly connected. Um, one scholar noted that over the course of her confessions, she uses the word pain 71 times. And if you think back to all of the things that she was doing to her body, 
how traumatic that must have been for her after a miscarriage, you can start to see as well like, oh my God, to like, oh my God. Right? This woman, like what she was doing and her state, her mental state, um, where she must have been. Um, she refers to, she says that her cervix was soft after she miscarried and that was how they were able to put the claws and body of a cat and head of a rabbit into her uterus. So she does say that they were actually able to do that. Um, and she refers to it in her confession as the monster. That's how she refers to it. And she, of course, said this put her to much pain, as you might imagine. Um, what's really interesting is that this is not her doing. In her second and third confessions, she implicates both her mother-in-law and John Howard as being people who talked her into this. So her mother-in-law's a midwife, do you remember, who would have the knowledge and sort of to, to think about how to do this. So it's clear to me from reading the confessions that Mary was not in a good mental or physical place and she was taken advantage of because of this trauma that she had had with this miscarriage, um, especially her mother-in-law, who she talks about quite a bit. So I think your mother-in-law is bad. Um, so they're, they're taking advantage of her in a way that's um, pretty horrible. So the, other, so the question remains, why do it? I mean, seriously, why do this? Uh, the first question, or the first answer is money. So King George I would give pensions to any oddities that he deemed to be true. So if they were able to convince him, they would have had money for life. It would have been set. Um, the other answer is connected and also a bit more complicated. So at this time, if you remember, John Howard was called a man midwife. Midwives had been women traditionally for hundreds of years, and they were being pushed out by men who thought they, they would do a better job. So they were taking women out of this profession. Mary's mother-in-law was a midwife. She was losing her livelihood. So in part, this was connected to money. Um, and so from these male physicians, we get lovely things like the forceps. So there's that. Um, but generally, um, these two things are connected. They needed money, and Mary's mother-in-law kind of wanted to show how ignorant these male doctors were. None of the men ever said it was a hoax until she confessed. And that made them all look really, really stupid. Like, really stupid. Um, and so I think then, I'm gonna stop there and say, you know, how did everyone in this affair end up? And I will let you find out. At this point, Zold's presentation shows the eventual fates of all those involved in Mary Toff's story a la Breakfast Club, complete with simple minds, don't you forget about me. If you're curious about the outcomes of Mary's story, be sure to research the affair online or at your public library. Thanks again to Beth Zold for joining us on this episode of Culture Click. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 12.30 right here on 89.5 KQAL. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQALFM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Do you want to know about all things Winona and the surrounding area? 
Tune in to Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.